0: God in heaven, I just thank you for a chance to reflect upon some important principles in scripture. I pray as we reflect upon this particular topic this evening, that you would minister to us, that you would speak life into us, and that you would help us um, to process and work through those circumstances where we have not been who we wish that we would be, and help us to see how you see us in those moments. So help us, oh God, we pray. I pray that you would speak with power, with conviction, and with clarity, and I ask it In Jesus' name, amen. As was mentioned this morning, um, I work for the Pennsylvania Conference. We have a school of evangelism called CORE. Um, Our website is CORE, C-O-R-E, evangelism, starting with an E and the rest of it. Um, So there's two E's, CORE evangelism. Dot com, that website, we have a new one that's going to that link any day now, um, but the old website was paconference.org forward slash core, but I'm going to post in the Avent Hope Connect uh, Facebook page um, our Three Angels Messages class that we're offering for free, uh, because I think this is so important for people to know this message, and I think it's going to be a blessing to you. So that's going to be shared there. Uh, you're welcome to have that, and you can share it with whoever you want. It's a Google Drive folder. Feel free to disperse that like the leaves of autumn. Um, but 2020 was a year that many of us would like to forget. Uh, a global pandemic, race issues coming to the fore, riots, economic devastation, our liberties and rights being challenged, a brutal election that apparently still isn't over. Who knows? And the list goes on. And many of us have had to face our, by the way, I'm not, yeah, anyway, I'm, i do not even at it. I didn't even know how to clarify what I'm saying. I'm just saying that people are saying that, uh, anyway, so many of us have had to face ourselves in a way that we never would have envisioned. Uh, and maybe we found ourselves, again, being a version of ourselves that we regret in the face of all these challenges. So maybe 2021, and we lost. But I hope that our study today is going to help us see that even if we haven't handled things the way that we would wish, uh, there is hope in the grace of Christ. So that is my, uh, my earnest desire and plea uh, for all of us. So if 2021 is our study this evening. But before we get into that, I would I would encourage you to put yourself in the emotional headspace of the people that we observe in this study this afternoon and look at how Jesus dealt with them. I think this is so important. Many times we read scripture in a very dry, detached fashion. These were real people with real stories going through real pain, real loss, real um. You know, mistakes that they've made in life, real shame. And it's really important to put yourself in their shoes. When you read stories in scripture, imagine yourself being the person that you're reading about. Then imagine yourself being Jesus who interacts with that person or whoever else it may be. And it's really helpful to make scripture come alive and to better appreciate all of what took place in the ministry and life of Jesus. Um, I think we lose a blessing many times in our study of scripture because we're just reading words and looking at events without realizing, again, that they real people with real emotions. And that Jesus is a man of deep and earnest compassion who sees this pain, who addresses it along with their behavioral health and spiritual issues. And so um, anyway, I would encourage you to do that as we study this evening. The first person I want to look at is the woman caught in the act of adultery. Go to John chapter eight. Okay. I be looking at stories of people that Jesus interacted with whose lives were not what they would wish that they would be. Uh, people who made mistakes in life, and how did God view them, and how could God even still use them, even though they had chapters in their lives that they were ashamed of. I think this is very important because, again, some of us may have a 2020 chapter that we wish no one ever saw. Um, By the way, I was just telling Dean Cullinane yesterday, I made a vow last year that I was not going to do a single sermon title or any wordplay on the topic 2020. I'm not going to do it, and by God's grace, I made it. And then for, you know, the first Sabbath of the year, I, I did it for, for this year. But I didn't last year, and I was proud of myself for that. I just thought, like, that's too bandwagony, and I'm a bit of a nonconformist in some of those things. But anyway, go to John chapter 8, beginning of verse 1. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Okay, so they're already setting Jesus up to not handle this well, because Moses said this, are you against Moses, which is going to get him in trouble. But if he says, yeah, killer, the problem is the Romans had to give you permission to do something like that. He's going to get himself in trouble with the Romans. So it's seemingly a no win scenario unless you're Jesus, who's awesome. So then this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. I love how, like, non-combative he was. They're throwing shade at Jesus, trying to get him in trouble, and it's as if he doesn't even hear them, and starts drawing on the ground, writing something on the ground. Now, Moses' law said that the man and the woman should both be stoned together. So they did not bring the man, it's only the woman. So this isn't gonna be a good scenario for that either. But then go to verse seven, okay? So when they continued asking and he raised himself up and said to them, he who was without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. This is happening in church, guys. This is in the temple, okay? And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And it's super interesting because the way that Jesus handles this I mean, first of all, these guys are kind of clowns. You know, I'd be really upset by the hypocrisy of the people involved here. But Jesus doesn't shame them publicly. Jesus does not endorse shame. And so he doesn't shame them. They were convicted by their conscience, not condemned by Jesus publicly. It's a big difference here. He's not defining them by their sins. But the interesting thing is, as he's writing on the ground, he doesn't say Pharisee A, liar. Pharisee B, extorter, extortioner man who extorts. Um, He doesn't do that, right? He doesn't identify the person with the sin. He just writes the things that those people in that crowd are struggling with, the religious leaders. And when they're convicted by their conscience, they all leave. But Jesus here again doesn't really go at this lady, right? He realizes she was set up. She's just a chess piece so these religious leaders can try to get at Jesus. He understands the bigger picture of what's going on here. But it's interesting. Go to Desire of Ages. I say, go to Desire of Ages. I'm going to read you a quote from Desire of Ages. Says that Jesus looked for a moment upon the scene, the trembling victim in her shame. They're shaming her publicly. Jesus does not shame them publicly. That we would think maybe they deserve it. But it says the hard-faced dignitaries, devoid of even human pity, his spirit of stainless purity shrank from the spectacle. I'm not about this, fellas. You're going to have to count me out on this one. Well, he knew for what purpose this case had been brought to him. He read the heart and knew the character and life history of everyone in his presence. Can you imagine? He looks and it's like a a TV screen goes off and he sees this guy's real story, what he really does. This guy, this guy, and this guy. He sees the life history of everyone in his presence and these would-be guardians of justice had themselves led their victim into sin. It was a setup that they might lay a snare for Jesus. And giving no sign that he had heard their question, he stooped and fixing his eyes upon the ground, began to write in the dust. And it's incredible. I mean, the stuff that that's written in here um, in pages 461 and 462 are just absolutely lights out. Um, but uh, I'll read a little bit here. Impatient at his delay and apparent indifference, this is 461.2, Impatient at his delay and apparent indifference, the accusers drew nearer, urging the matter upon his attention. But as their eyes following those of Jesus fell upon the pavement at his feet, their countenances changed. There, traced before them, were the guilty secrets of their own lives. The people looking on saw the sudden change of expression, and they pressed forward to discover what it was that they were regarding with such astonishment and shame. Hey, why are these religious leaders so uncomfortable? What did Jesus write? (laughs) And with all their professions and reverence for the law, these rabbis, in bringing the charge against the woman, were disregarding its provisions, right? The husband should have taken action against her, and the guilty parties were to be punished equally. The action of the accusers was wholly unauthorized. Jesus, however, met them on their own ground. The law specified that in punishment by stoning, the witnesses in the case should be the first to cast a stone. And now rising and fixing his eyes upon the plotting elders, Jesus said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And stooping down, he continued writing on the ground. He had not set aside the law given through Moses, nor infringed upon the authority of Rome. The accusers had been defeated, and now their robe of pretended holiness torn from them. They stood guilty and condemned in the presence of infinite purity. Here she is standing, hardly clothed probably, before him feeling ashamed and guilty. But Jesus does the switcheroo. Now these guys are standing somewhat naked and vulnerable, right, by the fact that their sins are written on the ground in front of them. No names are associated with it. No one knows who's tied to what. But they themselves are now in this crazy reversal of roles. And uh, it says this. The woman had stood before Jesus, cowering with fear. This is 462.1. His words, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone, had come to her as a death sentence. She dared not lift her eyes to the Savior's face, but silently awaited her doom. In astonishment, she saw her accusers, accusers depart, speechless and confounded. Then those words of hope fell upon her ear, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Her heart was melted, and she cast herself at the feet of Jesus. "'sobbing out her grateful love "'and with bitter tears, confessing her sins. "'This to her was a beginning of a new life, "'a life of purity and peace devoted to the service of God. "'In the uplifting of this fallen soul, "'Jesus performed a greater miracle "'than in healing the most grievous physical disease. "'He cured the spiritual malady, "'which is unto death everlasting. "'And this penitent woman "'became one of his most steadfast followers.' With self-sacrificing love and devotion, she repaid his forgiving mercy. And then she, uh, I want to close with this thought. She says, in his act of pardoning this woman and encouraging her to live a better life, the character of Jesus shines forth in the beauty of perfect righteousness. While he does not palliate sin nor lessen the sense of guilt, he seeks not to condemn, but to save. The world had for this erring woman only contempt and scorn, but Jesus speaks words of comfort and hope. The sinless one pities the weakness of the sinner and reaches to her a helping hand, while the hypocritical Pharisees denounce Jesus bids her go and sin no more. It is not Christ's follower that with averted eyes turns from the erring, leaving them unhindered to pursue their downward course. Those who are forward in accusing others and zealous in bringing them to justice are often in their own lives more guilty than they. Right? Those who are navel-gazing and pointing fingers at sinners— are usually more guilty than the sinners they're accusing. Okay, those who are forward in accusing others and zealous in bringing them to justice are often in their own lives more guilty than they. Men hate the sinner while they love the sin, but Christ hates the sin, but loves the sinner. This will be the spirit of all who follow him. Christian love is slow to censure, quick to discern penitence, ready to forgive, to encourage, to set the wanderer in the path of holiness and to stay his feet therein. I just love that, how Jesus dealt with this situation. It was just amazing. So he doesn't palliate the sin, but he doesn't condemn the woman. She's greeted with acceptance and accountability. And that's what the true gospel should do, offer acceptance and accountability. So the other thing I see here is that Jesus is willing to silence our accusers. Maybe there's voices of shame hollering in your heart and in your mind for the mistakes you made. Maybe there's voices of condemnation hollering in your head because of who you were or what you did in 2020. Maybe you have you know, non-Christian co-workers or other people that you work with and who you were in front of them during this crisis, you deeply regret, right? And maybe they're getting at us. You're a Christian, huh? Well, the good news is Jesus can silence our accusers. He can take care of these circumstances. That's the first person we looked at. Now, let's look at Zacchaeus. Go to Luke chapter 19. I just heard a really cool song about Zacchaeus. Not a children's song either. Um, That I really appreciated recently. Go to Luke chapter 19 and beginning of verse 1. Luke chapter 19, beginning of verse 1, looking at how Jesus dealt with people who had blow-ups in their lives, right? People who had, you know, frustrating circumstances that got the best of them. Luke 19, 1 to 9, people who were not who they wished they would have been. Verse 1, then Jesus entered and and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not, because of the crowd, He was of short stature. And you know, there are people in our midst and in our lives, and maybe some of us, who are are short in stature spiritually. Everybody else seems to have that VIP access to Jesus, but I just can't get to this guy. I don't feel like I'm ever going to be good enough. I don't have what it takes. I'm not spiritual enough. I don't have a devotional life. We just kind of struggle in life. Right. Zacchaeus was short of stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was going to pass that way. And When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, how does he know his name? Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today i must stay at your house. Jesus is going to go stay at the house of this guy, a tax collector. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who was a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold." And Jesus said to him, today's salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. And I love this. Everything that Abraham is entitled to, this man can receive. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I love Jesus's dealings here, right? Again, being a son of Abraham applied a right to all the blessings that God promised to Abraham. We alluded to that this morning in the closing prayer. Jesus gives affirmation and a restoration of the man's hope and his self-respect in saying this, right? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a traitor. I'm a deceitful, horrible person. I've turned to my own countrymen to be a tax collector but Jesus restores this man's dignity right and speaks into the area of his self-respect and I love this how Jesus dealt with this man go to Matthew chapter 26 we'll look at the life of Judas Matthew chapter 26 beginning of verse 17 Matthew chapter 26 and verse 17. Now, on the first day of the feast and the eleven bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me imagine hearing those words like what do you you even mean jesus we would never do that and they were exceedingly sorrowful verse 22 and each of them began to say lord is it is it i verse 23 he answered and said he who has dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me verse 24 the son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed it would have been good for that man if he had not been born Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. Now, if you've ever wrestled with temptation, you know that there's a scary moment when you decide to give in and you know that you shouldn't. Right? You kind of, your body kind of gets flush. You know, I don't know if this has ever happened to me. I just heard of such things, you know. Um, (laughs) Right? But you just kind of have this, this kind of, like there's physiological reactions and so forth where you just know where your heart rate starts to increase. You know that you're about to do something you shouldn't do, but it's just like Jesus to greet us with his goodness and love before we do so to seek to change our course. And I just I'm, – I'm, I take great consolation in this. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe. It's 1 Corinthians 10. I always get this confused. I've been doing this for over 10 years, and I still can't get it right. First Corinthians 10 uh, and verse 12, where therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall But no temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it, literally means to endure it. There's always a way of escape. We never have to give in in these moments. And it's just like Jesus to overwhelm us with his goodness before we fall so that we won't. But even after he does, Matthew chapter 26 it's really interesting the language Jesus uses with Judas. We, we know that Judas ends up being lost, obviously. But still, the way that Jesus deals with this man is very interesting. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 50. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve of the great multitude of swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi and kissed him, but Jesus said to him, friend, friend, why have you come? He's trying to help Judas understand what he's done, but he musters the unselfish love to refer to this man as friend. Now, we're not making a massive application here that if you've got people who have violated or harmed you in your past that you need to you have a wide-open-door policy. We're not going anywhere with this. We're just looking at how Jesus dealt with people who had issues in life, right? People who made a mess of life and made mistakes and, you know, caused some problems. And that Jesus, even though he's been betrayed by Judas, and Judas has turned his life completely over to the forces of darkness, Jesus's disposition toward him still is one of love. And it's amazing to me. He says, friend, why have you come? And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. But we'll look at the thief on the cross. Go with me to Luke chapter 23. Look at how Jesus has a love affair with the guilty. Luke chapter 23. Beginning of verse 32. How Jesus dealt with people whose lives were not, not the best. And we're not saying, sign up for a life of sin, Jesus will love you anyway. I've never said that, never would say that. Please don't imply that I'm saying that. The point is, many of us uh, over the course of last year have found ourselves in circumstances that we realize, man, I didn't know I would do that, that I was capable of that. Like, is God okay with me? Does God want anything to do with me knowing what I did? Even though we love Jesus, we want to serve him, we just, it got the best of us, man. Like we lost faith maybe we stopped praying maybe we stopped communing with god stopped going to church maybe you had to stop going to church but now that gives you an excuse to not even try to do spiritual things anymore because there's no peer pressure to show up at church wearing the right clothes now you can just completely go wall. and how does god work with us in these circumstances and how does god see people view people who go through these dark chapters and their experiences there's still hope for us right? Judas's unique situation here where he made his final decision, but even how Jesus spoke to this man as someone who caused this tremendous problem was just amazing to me. Go to Luke chapter 23, beginning of verse 32. Then there were also two others, criminals, led with Jesus to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left, then Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they do, right? People who are crucifying Jesus, Jesus' response to the Father is, look, they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea what's about to happen and and how significant this event is. Father, forgive them, right? His disposition to be thinking about other people when he has every right to think about himself in this moment is beyond me. And he doesn't stop there. And they divided his garments and cast lots, verse 35, and the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Irony of ironies, it's because he is the Messiah, that he's not going to come down from that cross. Then it says... Uh, Verse 38, and an inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. When I come again in those clouds, you will be with me. Jesus clearly meets this man where he is. And this guy doesn't know a lot. But what he does know is that Jesus is the Christ and that he's the answer to his spiritual poverty. And Jesus says, that's enough. Right? The guy's being crucified. You can't give him 25 Bible studies and clear him for baptism. He has a very small window to work with, and Jesus meets this guy where he is, right? He acknowledges the spiritual poverty, his need of Jesus, and Jesus meets that guy, in that very sacred space, and he affirms that that's enough, and he promises him acceptance and eternity. Jesus says in John chapter 6 and verse 37, that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And I love this, right? And uh, Ellen White actually wrote a letter to somebody who was deeply discouraged in their faith and wondered if they could even be accepted by God because of the mistakes that they had made. This is what she says. The message from God to me for you is, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. If you have nothing else to plead before God but this one promise from your Lord and Savior, you have the assurance that you will never, never be turned away. It may seem that you're hanging upon a single promise, but appropriate that one promise and it will open to you the whole treasure house of the riches of the grace of Christ. Cling to that promise and you are safe. Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. Present this assurance to Jesus, and you are as safe as though inside of the city of God. Maybe you feel you have nothing to offer Jesus today. 2020 was a dumpster fire. I made so many mistakes. I made so many decisions I wish I hadn't made. And I just wonder does God want anything to do with me now? Right? I've been snapping at my kids or my wife or my family, right? I've been <laughs> upset at the dog, whatever, right? I've, I've, I've just I've lost it at work. Like, the stress of what's going on in the world right now has absolutely gotten the best of me. But we're told, if you have nothing to offer Jesus but this one promise, that he who comes unto me, I will no wise cast out, that's enough. That's enough. Which tells me that God is for us and not against us. Right? God is looking for every reasonable reason to bring us into the kingdom, not to keep us out. Jesus prayed very fervently in John chapter 17, Father, I desire that they might be with me where I am. Jesus earnestly desires to see us in heaven. And if we come to Jesus, if we own our spiritual poverty and confess, I am nothing without you. I've made a mess of my life. Jesus, forgive my sins and set me free. In that moment, you are forgiven. In that moment, you are as safe as though inside of the city of God. And I take great, great consolation in this. But I want to look at another individual today that I think is probably the most compelling and the most comprehensive on how Jesus dealt with him before, during, and after his fall. Look at this. Look at Peter. This is John chapter 13, verses 36 to 38. This is Peter before he falls. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward." Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. There's another place where Jesus says, Peter, Satan has longed to sift you as, uh, as as, as wheat is sifted. But I've prayed for you that your faith should fail you not. And when you're converted, I want you to strengthen your brethren. Right? Jesus is trying to warn Peter, you're on very dangerous ground right now. And he was just sure that what Peter said was sincere, but it was sincerely wrong. He was not he was not correct. He wasn't going to do this, right? He did fall, right? I'll lay down your life. I will lay down my life for your sake. He didn't. He ran for his life. And so that's before he falls. But here's the amazing thing. Immediately after this, I did not see this for the longest time, uh, but I was staying with a friend in the Boston area. And um, he was sharing with me that the very next words, because it's really easy for us as Westerners, especially, that when we read books, especially the Bible, that when we read a new chapter. Or, you, know, that, you know, if you're in chapter 13, you go to chapter 14, like it's a change of scenery, a change of thought, a change of idea. But there were no chapters and versification when the Bible was written those weren't in there originally, those were added later, and they're helpful reference tools, but they're not inspired, right, they weren't, they weren't, you know, given there whenever they're first written, and so when Peter tells Jesus, will you lay down your life for my sake, most assuredly I say to you, the rooster shall not crow to you, deny me three times, the very next words out of the mouth of Jesus are, let not your heart be troubled, Peter, You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. It's rooms in the original language. But the point is, there's room for you, Peter. And I'm going to prepare a place for you, right? I I know what you're about to do, but I also know the trajectory of your heart, and that this isn't the end of your story, right? Jesus isn't palliating the sin that Peter's about to commit. He knows that Peter's going to turn around, that this is going to be the thing that breaks Peter and gives him a full surrender to Jesus, And and Jesus tells them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Immediately following this exposing of Peter's future fall, Jesus encourages him. I'm still going to come back for you, Peter. I'm still coming back because I know this isn't the end of your story. I know what you're going to do. And before you do it, I want you to know that I love you. And then after my sufferings and resurrection, I still had every intention of coming back for you. Isn't that amazing? How about Peter as he falls? Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow was also with them, for he's a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you were saying. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And Then Jesus, in that very moment turns and looks across the courtyard and he stares at peter then peter remembered the word of the lord how he had said to him before the rooster crows you will deny me three times so peter went out and wept bitterly listen to this from desire of ages while the degrading oaths were fresh upon peter's lips and the shrill crowing of the cock was still ringing in his ears the Savior turned from the frowning judges and looked full upon his poor disciple. At the same time, Peter's eyes were drawn to his master. And in that gentle countenance, he read deep pity and sorrow, but there was no anger there. And would to God that I saw that when I sinned. It's happening just as much for me in that moment as it was for Peter in this moment, but I can't see it. But can you just imagine, Peter has done the very unthinkable thing he swore he would never do and in that moment when Jesus busts him and sees him in that moment there was no look of anger there's no look of anger but pity and sorrow just amazing and the sight of that pale suffering face those quivering lips that look of compassion and forgiveness pierced his heart like an arrow The goodness of God led him to repentance. The Savior's tender mercy, his kindness and long-suffering, his gentleness and patience toward his erring disciples, all was remembered. He recalled the caution, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And guys, Jesus has prayed for us too. Satan's longing to sift you like wheat. And he's praying for us, too, that our faith would fail us not. He reflected with horror upon his own ingratitude, his falsehood, his perjury. Once more, he looked at his master and saw a sacrilegious hand raised to smite him in the face. Unable longer to endure the scene, he rushed, heartbroken, from the hall. Peter runs from Jesus in his greatest time of need and trial, even after encountering his compassion. Passionate and forgiving face in the midst of his fall. You ever been there? God shows you undeserved grace, and it freaks you out. Get away from me. Don't touch me. Don't forgive me. I'm dirty, right? I don't deserve your forgiveness. I've been there, right? When shame is so loud, that voice of condemnation is so loud that we just cut ourselves off from from the grace of God. He's showing us grace, and we don't want it. You cannot give it to me. No way. Peter did that. But eventually he runs to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus had wrestled alone without Peter's help. And he weeps and weeps and weeps. Look what happens after his fall. Go to John chapter 21. So we've seen how Jesus dealt with Peter before he falls. We've seen how Jesus deals with Peter as he's falling. Now go to how Jesus deals with Peter after he falls. John chapter 21, verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? The word Jesus uses here is the word agape, right? Do you love me with a perfect, unselfish, other-centered love? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The word he uses here is phileo. I have human love for you, Jesus. It's the best I can give. That's all I got. I don't have what you're asking, but I have this. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I follow you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Again, Peter's confessing his nothingness. Reminds me of the quote from the faith I lived by 111. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust. And doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men see their nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Now Peter's ready. He wasn't ready before. All these other losers are going to leave you, Jesus, but I won't. Peter didn't see his nothingness. He does now. All I have is fillet for you, Jesus. That's the best I can do. Jesus says, tend my sheep. Verse 17, then he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me? Jesus meets him where he is. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you that when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Do you love me, Peter? Not in the ways that you're asking Jesus, but I'll give you what I do have. And Jesus says, "I'll, I'll take that. And the amazing thing to me is Jesus tells him, look, this is, this is what's going to cost you, Pete, and it's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. But then he invites him to follow him. He doesn't cut him off after he fell. He invites him to be a co-laborer in advancing the kingdom. He leads Peter to repentance and reconciliation. He gives him a work to do, and he tells him the cost that comes with that call. And lastly, he still invites him, follow me. Guys, Peter blew it big time. He wasn't who he wished that he would be, but that doesn't have to be the end. Again, if 2021 and you were not who you wish you would be, you made a lot of mistakes, your time with God plummeted, you know, you just left the things of God, you're struggling spiritually, you're floundering, you're falling back into bad habits, you're just not in a good place. Jesus isn't done with you, and he's inviting you to come back, right? He's leading us with his undeserved grace, that unmerited favor, right? Leading us to repentance and reconciliation. And there's still a work for you to do. Reminded of Elijah, we covered this and I was here for restoration in a message called, what if I fail? That Elijah bailed when God needed him the most because things didn't go the way that he thought that they should go and God didn't give up on him. He chased the guy down, helped him to see the real issues and he sent him back and said, look, I still need you. I'm not, I didn't send you here right? And I'm not giving up on you because you are here. Go back. I still need you in my service. And guys, he's making the same appeal to you today. God still needs you. God still has a plan for you, but you got to come back. Come back and let him do that work in through and for you that you cannot do yourself. But guys, the only reason why Jesus would bear this long with people and love them in spite of who they have been is because he sees something of value in them That they don't even see in themselves. Right, this is the faith of Jesus. It reminds me of Revelation chapter three and verse twenty, where it says, "Behold, I stand at the door and knock." You're going to turn with me there. Revelation chapter three, and verse twenty says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, there's no prerequisites. If you just open that door, if you respond to my pleading to your heart and let me in, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. What a precious privilege. But there's a context for this. Because the person he's speaking to here in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, early in Revelation chapter 3, he told them that your religious experience makes me want to vomit. Because you're not on fire, you're not hot, but you're not cold either, right? You're this tepid, lukewarm middle ground, and it makes me want to vomit. And he says, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, this is Revelation 3, verse 16 now, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. But because you say I'm rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing. But you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, right? You don't understand your true spiritual condition. You don't see your nothingness. You're not prepared to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the white garment he's about to offer, right? He says, I count you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. We're told in Galatians that that's a faith that works by love. He offers them white raiment, his righteousness. And then he offers them ISAB, spiritual discernment to recognize your true condition. Right? Jesus points out where we are that we're not where we need to be, but then he offers a solution in himself. And that that last was the hardest that spiritual discernment to recognize our true nothingness. But again, Jesus is knocking on the door of the heart of somebody whose relationship with him isn't that great. He sees something of value in them, even though they're not who they need to be. That's the faith of Jesus, guys. He sees something in you that you don't even see in yourself and he treats you as if that's who you really were, and this is what awakens a desire in your heart to live a life to honor such a faith, and I love this. This is from E.J. Wagner in the book, The Everlasting Covenant. He says, God chooses men not for what they are, but for what he can make of them, and there is no limit to what he can make of even the meanest and most depraved if they are only willing and believe his word. As God doesn't choose you because you have it all together. He chooses you for what he could make of you if you'll come. Right? Will you be willing? And will you believe what his word says about you? And he's not asking you to have feelings first and then take action. We're to take action before we feel anything, right? To act upon what the word of God says. That's what we're told to do. And we're told this in Desire of Ages, page 203, regarding the man who was at the pool of Bethesda right, when Jesus tells him to rise, take up his mat, and walk, there's no physical infrastructure to rise, take up his mat, and walk. He has to choose to act upon what God's word has told him in spite of what he feels, in spite of what he sees. And White makes a practical application to our lives in this. She says, through the same faith, we may have spiritual, we may receive spiritual healing. By sin, we have severed, uh, we have been severed from the life of God. Our souls are palsied. Of ourselves, we are no more capable of living a holy life than was that impotent man capable of walking. And there are many who realize their helplessness and who long for that spiritual life which will bring them into harmony with God, but they're vainly striving to obtain it. In despair, they cry, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Let these desponding, struggling ones look up. The Savior is bending over the purchase of his blood, saying with inexpressible tenderness and pity, Wilt thou be made whole? He bids you arise in health and peace. And we're told, do not wait to feel that you were made whole. Right? If this guy was waiting for some holy mojo feeling in his legs, he never would have walked again. He had to choose to believe what God said when he felt nothing. Believe his word and it will be fulfilled. Put your will on the side of Christ, your power of choice, will to serve him, and in acting upon his word, you will receive strength. Whatever may be the evil practice, the master passion which their long indulgence binds both soul and body, Christ is able and longs to deliver. Right? You may feel that your whole life has been a disaster, or maybe just the last series of months has been a disaster, and that you have no potential to bear fruit. Right? I, I got knocked down on the mat in 2020, and I, I can't get up. I've tried, and it's not working. I'm relapsing. I'm falling into bad habits again. Right, I don't even have a desire for spiritual things anymore. It's difficult for me to even commune with God or read the Bible or pray. I'm just so overwhelmed by what's going on in life, and I, I can't change it at this stage. I'm so messed up. You know, There's no hope, and you don't think it's worth wasting any more of this time. Right? I've been sitting here year after year after year, and I'm no good. You know what he says? Give me one more year. The parable of the fig tree, Luke chapter 13, where people say, look, it's, it's, worth, it's not worth the time. Just dig this thing up and get rid of it. He says, no, 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 no. Give me another year. Let me pour myself into this thing. Let me give it everything it needs for nourishment and strength and encouragement. Give me one more year. What better time to make that type of choice than right now, guys? Maybe 2020 was the worst experience of your life. He's asking you to give me one more year. Don't give up hope. We talked about this last night. And again this morning, don't give up hope. We can't. All right? This is not the time to let go of Jesus, Paul says. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Don't let go of Jesus. Cling to Jesus in this moment. For we did not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Right? Don't give up. He's not giving up on you. Don't give up on him. Give him another year. Right? Learn the lessons from what's happened in 2020 and give God a chance. Listen to this. This is from the book Testimonies on Sexual Behavior, Adultery, and Divorce. This book is amazing, by the way. Really good stuff in there. We need good heart religion, that we shall not only reprove, rebuke, exhort with all suffer- long-suffering and doctrine, but we shall take the erring in our arms of faith and bear them to the cross of Christ, treating people who are struggling and stumbling with gentleness, with tenderness. We must bring them in contact with the sin-pardoning Savior. I am more pained than I can express to see so little aptitude and skill to save souls that are ensnared by Satan. I see such a cold Phariseeism holding off at arm's length the one who's been deluded by the adversary of souls. And then I think, what if Jesus treated us this way? What if Jesus treated us the way that we've treated others with this this hard and cold indifference? She says, is this spirit to grow among us? If so, my brethren must excuse me. I cannot labor with them. I will not be a party to this kind of labor, she says. I think this is amazing, right? And yet so many times we see people with problems and we immediately cast them off. And because we see other Christians treat people that way, we may not open up to other Christians. Because what if they treat me the way they treated that person? right? My church was way too hard with that guy when he messed up, so I certainly can't tell my church that I'm struggling because what are they going to do to me, right? What if Jesus treated us this way? This is not the spirit that's to lead God's church. It's not. Jesus doesn't deal with us in the ways that we deserve. We need to come face to face with that, but I want to make it clear, right? First John chapter two, verse one, John speaking to his beloved church. He says, my beloved, my, my little children, these things I write to you so that you don't sin. I don't want you to sin. I'm not telling you go sin all you want. Jesus loves you. and will forgive you anyway. Like that, that would be total nonsense. I've never said that would never say it right. I, I wish you didn't sin. But here's the good news, guys. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. There's hope in Jesus. We said this this morning. There's hope in Jesus Right? I don't want you to stumble into sin. I don't want you to backslide or fall into old habits because 2020 has been so gnarly, but that's not what I'm asking of you. I'm not saying that's okay, even. But the point is, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. First John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He's not going to let us down. And he's just in doing so to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the original language actually reads to separate us from our sins and to cleanses from all unrighteousness. Listen to this. This is from the book, the Review and Herald, or from the periodical, the Review and Herald, May 12, 1896. This is dynamite stuff. If one who daily communes with God errs from the path, if he turns a moment from looking steadfastly into Jesus, it is not because he sins willfully, For when he sees his mistake, he turns again and fastens his eyes upon Jesus. And the fact that he has erred does not make him less dear to the heart of God. There's some people who need to hear that right now. I'm going to read it again. If one who daily communes with God, people who love Jesus, but stumble along the way, errs from the path. If he turns for a moment from looking steadfastly unto Jesus... It's not because he sins willfully. He forgot who he was. He got overwhelmed by what he was dealing with. For when he sees his mistake, he turns again and he fastens his eyes upon Jesus. And the fact that he has erred does not make him less dear to the heart of God. He knows that he has communion with the Savior. And when reproved for his mistake in some matter of judgment, he does not walk sullenly and complain of God but turns the mistake into a victory. He learns a lesson from the words of the master and takes heed that he not again be deceived. And I love this so much, that true Christians, people who know Jesus, but stumble along the way, they're not going to dwell on what a loser they are for the mistake that they made and that God hates my guts. They'll realize there must be a reason why I fell into this and I don't want to do that again. Right? It was just a stumble along the way. This isn't wholesale rebellion to leaving God. It's just part of Christian growth. And when it happens, you can learn lessons from this and you can turn that mistake into a victory. She says in another place that our weakest points can become our strongest points by the grace of God. And I love this so much. So, in short, those L's aren't losses, they're lessons, guys. 2020 wasn't filled with losses, it was filled with lessons if you allow them to be. 2020 doesn't have to win right this message is entitled if 2021 it doesn't have to win right anything that you struggled with and messed up with and the mistakes that you made along the way they don't have to define you they can make you a better Christian and a stronger Christian by learning of the weaknesses in your character that led you to make those mistakes in the first place right they're not those L's are not losses they're lessons if you allow them to be 2020 doesn't Have to win. Listen to this. Men whom God favored and to whom he entrusted great responsibilities were sometimes overcome by temptation and they committed sins. Even as we of the present day strive, waver, and frequently fall into error. But it is encouraging to desponding hearts to know that through God's grace, they could gain fresh vigor to again rise above their evil natures. And remembering this, we are ready to renew the conflict with ourselves right and this would be my challenge to us today going into 2021 as we've just begun this new year that to begin renewing that conflict with yourself with your flesh right ask yourself the hard probing questions who am i really what are the things that have my affections that are pulling me away from god what happened this last year that got me derailed from my relationship with jesus and how can i keep that from happening again my encouragement to us today is, first of all, God's not done with you, no matter what losses you have from 2020. And two, you can turn those losses into lessons by God's grace. And those weak points of your character can become the strongest points of your character by the grace of God. But will you take that pledge today? This year is going to be different. I had no idea what would be coming as we read this morning, very Controversy, it's through seasons like what we've had to deal with in this last year that are preparing us for the much larger crisis that's to come. So what lessons can we learn through this process to ensure we don't make the same mistake then? And that we can cling to Jesus and plead with him and come boldly into his presence, right, so that we can find grace to help us in our time of need and say, God, I, I am not going back to that place By God's grace, I recognize my nothingness, my inability to overcome this situation, but you can. If you came in human flesh and overcame on my behalf, then you can set me free and help me in this circumstance. Jesus, I know you can do that. That's why you came. And and, and make a pledge to Jesus today. I want 2021 to be different. I don't want 2020 to be an L as a loss. I want it to be an L as a lesson. And I want this year to be far better by God's grace. I want to be more in tune with your spirit, more intentional and in focusing on others and not my own problems, right? Be honest with yourself about what's going on. Deal with them. Plug into community. Get help. But don't just focus and wallow in what's happening to you, right? As we covered last night, let God console and comfort you in those dark seasons. And take the comfort that God gives you and give that to somebody else who's struggling the same ways right? Be more intentional in reaching out to others during these seasons of discouragement instead of just, you know, huddling off to ourselves, buying lifetime supplies of toilet paper and and ramen or something, right? Looking outward in the midst of these difficult trials. And I believe by God's grace, this year can be far better than last year, even if the external circumstances don't change because we're now better prepared to handle future difficulties because of the lessons we learned from the previous year. Are you with me guys 2020 didn't win those can be lessons that are going to empower us to succeed in 2021 no matter what the externals are let's pray god thank you for speaking to us for helping us to see that there's a lot of people that you love a lot that blew it in scripture that made mistakes in their lives but they recognized those mistakes. They came to Jesus. They sought forgiveness and reconciliation. And those L's were not losses. They were lessons. And they better set them up for the trials that were to come. Lord, 2020 has been a training ground for the future crisis, if we'll allow it to be. And I pray that you would help us to see that and that you would help us to grow and learn from that. That 2020 did not win. That By God's grace, it made us better people for the crisis to come. So Lord, forgive our sins. Cover them with the blood of Jesus. We need the outpouring of your Holy Spirit now more than ever. Oh God, give us an insatiable desire to commune with you, to be faithful to you, to be about our Father's business and sharing this beautiful message with the world. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to better understand why we are Seventh-day Adventists, why we believe what we believe, and how to intelligently and tactfully share this precious precious message with the world. And if this Three Angels Messages class can start to help people in that direction, then Lord, use it. Use it to be a blessing to empower your people. But Lord, we want to be ready when you come, and we want the world to be ready when you come. So here am I, send me. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.